This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. My name's Tim Bolin, and I'm a third-year student here at Suffolk. The article is called Singled Out, Application in Defense of Antitrust Law and Single-Entity Status to Non-Team Sports. I wrote the article for Volume 15 of the journal in January. The majority of antitrust litigation in pro sports has focused on Section 1 of the Sherman Act. The Sherman Act has two basic sections, 1 and 2, one concerning concerted activity between what would otherwise be economic competitors, and 2 concerning monopoly. Most of the arguments relative to Section 1 and sports pertain to leagues and the teams within those leagues, and that generally those leagues are considered to be joint ventures, and joint ventures have a difficult time with the antitrust laws because while they compete both on the field, the argument goes that they also compete off the field for revenue from fans in terms of their games, in terms of their intellectual property, and in terms of attracting a fan base. And so where the difficulty is encountered with antitrust law is how should those teams be characterized? Are they economic competitors, or are they really one single unit or a league that acts uniformly in all of their decisions? One way they often do is to point to the pro-competitive aspects of what their league does and the decisions their league makes. And this is the traditional way that any antitrust case does, is when you have a decision that would otherwise be anti-competitive, like when the teams agree, as the American Needle case was, to collectively license their intellectual property, the court looks and does what they call a rule of reason analysis. And that's basically balancing of the pro-competitive effects versus the anti-competitive effects of the action in question. When that balance comes out in favor, favor of being pro-competitive, even though there may be some anti-competitive aspects, it's then adjudged to be a reasonable practice and it's allowed. For example, the rule of reason has been used on the pro sports prior to the congressional antitrust exemption to justify joint marketing of television rights. The other way, and the way which prior to the American Needle's decision had been largely unsuccessful, is the single entity claim. And that's where the teams assert that they are, for whatever purpose, acting as a unified single actor. And that comes from a Supreme Court decision in the 1980s called the Copperweld decision, which the court basically said that wholly owned subsidiaries of a company cannot be economic competitors because they're acting under the auspices of the parent company. So they're not, in the classic sense, economic competitors. And so because they're not separate and distinct, they can't conspire with themselves in order to form a Section 1 violation. So the leagues, such as the NFL and the American Needle decision, have essentially said, no, we're not 32 individual teams were one league acting uniformly as a single entity. Non-team sports differ because they don't have the individual actors to claim that they are a single entity, and so they're in a unique position to utilize that defense because they don't have the trouble of saying, no, we have all these individual teams comprising our league, because non-team sports have a uniquely uniform, centralized system of governance. Like the PGA, for example, the Professional Golfers Association obviously doesn't have teams of golfers, they have individuals who collectively make up the PGA. Where the trouble comes in with non-team sports is that oftentimes those sports don't control the venues or the naming rights of the tournaments that they put on. For example, in the National Football League, the teams generally own or at least lease the stadium they play in. A golf tournament each year could be held at a different course. For example, the U.S. Open rotates among a number of different courses. The same thing with a number of tennis tournaments. So where the trouble comes in for antitrust implications for non-team sports is what's happening is where the 
the sport attempts to contract with a venue provider, say a, a tennis stadium provider, and they enter into an exclusive agreement to have a tennis tournament at that stadium to the detriment of other stadium operators elsewhere, then those other stadium operators are claiming that there's a Section 1 violation, essentially a contractor combination to restrain trade to the detriment of those other providers. Early on in the stages that these were advanced, it wasn't a well-recognized claim. However, increasingly, uh, it has been. This past summer, there was a case in Europe, but under American organized law because it was American teams, where a situation like I just described, where there was a, attempted to be a tennis tournament, several cities that had hoped to host parts of this tournament were neglected in favor of other bigger, more profitable cities, and they brought a claim. The league advocated the single entity defense, and while they did not win that defense uh, as a matter of law, the judge didn't recognize them as a matter of law, the first question on the jury verdict was, do you find a combination among different entities? And the jury answered that question in the negative, and that essentially ended the case right there. There was no need to go any further in the verdict. Single entity status, it's important because it's a very broad grant of power. It essentially makes the teams immune from the Section 1 of the Sherman Act. Now, that's not to say they can't uh, still be held accountable under Section 2 and the monopoly sections, but what it would do, uh, for example, if the NFL was to get single entity status, it would essentially say that the NFL, uh, for Section 1 purposes, can never have a lawsuit brought against it underneath Section 1, because everything it does, it does as one entity, and therefore it's legally incapable of conspiring with itself, because there's no separate actors. There's no individual economic activity going on. The implications that would have, especially for leagues that negotiate with a players union like the NFL does, is that it would essentially give them a huge bargaining chip in collective negotiations with their union. The reason being that the union and the NFL, for example, or, or any league, have consistently relied upon common law protections from antitrust analysis, such as the non-statutory uh, labor exemption, which says that for the purposes of collective bargaining, now the union nor the league uh, are subject to antitrust law because it's in furtherance of labor law that they be allowed to collectively bargain. That, sh that should be encouraged under the National Labor Relations Act. What the union and the NFL has traditionally done is that when negotiations and for a collective agreement have reached an impasse is at least on one occasion in 1989, they decertified as a union. Essentially, that took the non-statutory labor exemption off the table because the NFL was no longer negotiating with a union and opened them up to an antitrust suit uh, to force them more or less back to the bargaining table. If the NFL were to have single entity status, a move like that would have no power. Even if they were to decertify, the NFL wouldn't need the non-statutory labor exemption because they'd have single entity status, which again is that broad grant of immunity. The hesitance from the courts to extend this is because of the implications and because of the power that that immunity would confer upon the league. What differs in the American Needle case is the court there that gave single entity status, the Seventh Circuit, didn't give it to the NFL as a whole. It gave it to a very specific facet of the NFL. It gave it to the NFL insofar as it licensed its intellectual property through a separate organization called NFL Properties. Obviously, the plaintiffs in that case, American Needle, do not want single entity status in any respect. But when the case went to the Supreme Court, the NFL, perhaps maybe even a little overzealously, argued that they should be a single entity in all respects. And while I think that would probably not be appetizing to the Supreme Court because of the power that single entity status has, there may be a chance that increasingly you'll see sports leagues arguing that, at least in the facet of that, any particular litigation concerns, they may be a single entity, whether that be intellectual property or broadcast rights or any small facet of the league.
Blaylock is, again, it's a pre-Copperweld case, so it was before the single entity status was really at the forefront or at the attention of the defendants and the plaintiffs. And there, a ladies professional golfer was suspended for a violation of the rules that the LPGA created. She moved her ball during a tournament. And she brought a claim against the league saying that essentially what that was was all of the golfers of the league were conspiring against her and what's called a concerted refusal to deal, essentially a boycott against letting her play. The LPGA advocated a bit of a single entity argument, but it was a bit before its time. And Blaylock ended up winning that case because what the court found was that the actions of the individuals in that, the members that made up the governing committee of the LPGA, did act in a concerted fashion to not allow her to play. And at the time, that was considered to be per se illegal. If the single entity issue had been more apparent at that time, what you could have essentially had was a battle of per se arguments. And that's per se illegality, because it's a group boycott, or per se legality, because of the single entity status. And in that case, I think single entity status would have won, because again, that gives you immunity from Section 1, and so you can't have something per se illegal under a section that you're not liable to under the single entity issue. The best ways I believe attorneys can advance the single entity status, especially as it pertains to sports leagues, is to not try to overly apply the defense to too broad an area of the league, which I think was an error that the NFL made when it presented its case to the Supreme Court. A number of questions they got were just surprised at how broad this power is. At one point at the end of the defendant's counsel, Justice Scalia remarked, wow, when asking what he thought was an absurd question, just how far this power would go. So I think the best thing they can do is to limit their application of the defense to the specific facet being challenged. So, for example, in the American Needle case, to limit it specifically to that intellectual property issue. The other thing they can do is more classic antitrust defenses, which is, of course, to challenge the market size definitions that the plaintiffs have proffered, because Section 1 requires economic harm in a specific market. By showing that they are a single entity both within a specific facet of the league, or maybe even within a specific specific geographic or product market, what that does is temper the broad reach of the single entity status and make it a little bit more palatable to a judge who might otherwise be reticent to grant as a matter of law such a broad power. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.